to the Museum of Modern Art and the uh, Penn World Voices Festival. My name is Neil Selkirk, and I am one of the three people who made the Diane Arbus slideshow that you are about to see. I am going to very briefly explain to you what the Diane Arbus slideshow is. In 1970, Diane Arbus was invited by Cornell Kappa to give a talk to an audience of her peers, one of a series of talks Cornell Kappa was organizing as part of an, an organization that became the ICP but didn't have a home. As far as we know, the talks took place somewhere downtown, somewhere near NYU. Nobody seems to know exactly where. The talk happened, and it, a sound recording was made of it. And that recording, or a copy of that recording, came into the hands of the Arbus estate. That was 1970. Uh, cut to 2004, and the, uh, the Arbus retrospective, Diane Arbus Revelations, was making its way across the country and was coming to the Met. And in the fall of 2004, Jeff Rosenheim at the Met approached the estate for ideas for elements that would go into an educational program that the Met would be doing in conjunction with the show when it opened in the spring of 2005. And Dunabas, uh, Diane's elder daughter, suggested that the, uh, the recording be unearthed and that we, f using the recording, find the images that Diane was talking about, reconstruct it, and turn it into the slideshow that she originally gave. And uh, Jeff enthusiastically endorsed that, and we set about doing it. The, um, the process was fairly straightforward. I mean, you knew, if you knew the pictures, you knew what she was talking about. The estate had in its possession all Deanne's original torn out shreds and shards of pictures she'd ripped out of magazines and newspapers. And so we photocopied them, and we made copies of the relevant photographs. Um, there were actually two additional sources of sound material. There was uh, a recording that Studs Terkel had made. He interviewed Deanne uh, for a book he was writing about children who grew up during the Depression and subsequently complained that he was trying to get her to talk, her to talk about her childhood and all she would do was talk about photography, which was to our benefit. Um, also, there was a Japanese photographer in Diane's last master class that she held at Westbeth, where she lived, um, Iko Narahara, who was spending a sort of sabbatical year in New York, and his English was very poor, and he was concerned that he would miss most of what was said, so he decided that he would stick a tape recorder on the floor in front of Diane and simply record all the classes and figure out later what it was she said. Small elements of these two latter elements uh, are included, usually just to, uh, to round out uh, an anecdote or something that was already there. Overwhelmingly, this is the original slideshow. Um, the recording quality was extremely poor, and we've done what we can to enhance it, uh, which brings me to the point that there should be no recording here tonight. Um, that would, it's expressly forbidden and is also illegal. Um, Penn is organizing this, and this is wonderful because Penn is about words, and this is the only gathering there's ever been 
to discuss Deanne Arbison words. And as soon as the slideshow ends, Michael Cunningham and Francine Prose and Dune Arbus will get up on the stage and read from various different things that Deanne wrote over time. And then they will have a discussion about what they think about what they've heard. And uh, so for now, we'll take a look at the slideshow. Thank you. one of them. You know, I mean, that was an incredible feeling. In fact, the first time I went to one, it was absolutely terrific because it takes, you know, it takes two minutes. I mean, you go in and it's, it's perfectly easy. And has anybody here noticed? You're not supposed to acknowledge, the, you know, at least it used to be, you weren't supposed to acknowledge when you saw someone in public, you know, like here, you know, you weren't supposed to say, oh, hi, you know, I saw you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, but like, I went in there and I remember the first thing I saw was a man uh, mowing his lawn. <laughs> it was really terrific. And one man told me he plays this game. You know that New Yorker cartoon where uh, like a man and a woman are walking down a street and uh, you know he's undressing her and she's undressing him? So this man told me this man was a, a god in fencing. <laughs> I mean, they always pride in themselves on how they, people come from all walks of life. <laughs> and he said he used to, you know, play the game of dressing people, and that was really fascinating. <laughs> you know, in the sense that, you, you know, he was trying to figure out, like, what kind of person this was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is a waitress. This is the first camp, which was terrific. The first camp was very seedy, and it was a little like, um, well, they keep talking about how peaceful it is. Now, it's true it is peaceful. I mean, it's, it is sort of fun. You get, I get incredibly sick of, you know, I really wish sometimes when, when I, I can't stay long. The first time I stayed a week, but I get like, like I wish I could slip into something comfortable, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's sort of uncomfortable this way. But, uh, but they, they wear a lot of clothes, actually. Like that first lady you saw, you know, had like uh, platform shoes and, uh, you know, rings and earrings, and sometimes they even wear, uh, carry pocketbooks, and uh, men wear hats and men wear shoes and sometimes socks and put their cigarettes in the socks and matches. <laughs> and they ha it's a kind of funny, I I at least in the first camp, terrifically, they vary enormously. I mean, the, the, one, uh, the one that was taken, the last picture, well, their family with the car, that's called the Grossingers. Look at them, that camp. <laughs> uh, they also, they, they claim this funny thing, that, that nudists have a sort of higher moral tone than the rest of the outside world because they, they go on with this sort of rationale about how sex, I mean, the whole emphasis on sex is based on mystery. And when you take the mystery away, they say, I mean, they give you a speech like this. But actually, they have dirty magazines and, <laughs> and they're really sort of playing footsie all the time, you know? I mean, sort of, not all the time, but I mean, a seduction scene in a nudist camp is, without a doubt, the most terrific experience. Because they're playing around like you're, I mean, you're already, you're all completely ready. But they're... 
see that picture on the wall? That's a picture from one of those, you know, like, lick, pick, quick, you know, one of those, <laughs> those dirty magazines, you know. Now, they're a retired couple. Now, they've got, like, they own their own home in this nudist camp. I mean, some people come there just for the weekend or the day or the month or something like that. But these people live there all the time. I think in the winter they get dressed, and they've got two sons who don't believe in nudism. <laughs> and the sons come, uh, uh, you know, to visit, all dressed up. <laughs> you know, it's like I went back to the carnival, where I'd never been when I was supposed to have been there. <laughs> uh, well, those people, it doesn't matter. Those people, the freaks particularly, uh, were, they were kind of like movie stars, you know? Uh, like they had this quality of, <laughs> of sort of, uh, I can't exactly explain it. It was a kind of quality. They were like anonymously famous to me. And it was a very beautiful thing. It was like, much better than the really famous people. Uh, I had a feeling about them that I don't think is really true, but they seemed like a kind of aristocracy, you know, by birth. So, oh, one, you know, sort of theory I had. But my theories are sort of dumb, and they're, uh, <coughs> I just like them. <laughs> they're like Oreo sandwiches. Uh, my theory was that that everybody, oh, I know, I couldn't think of it for a minute, that everyone, that you go through existence with a kind of anxiety because you feel like there's some test waiting. I mean, there is, <laughs> very often. Or sometimes there isn't, but you're waiting for it anyway. I mean, like, just how good a person are you, you know, in the clinches. <laughs> and somehow, I, I had the notion that these people were... You know, they'd already survived a pretty supreme test. And uh, I fancied, you know, that that gave them a kind of glamour. I mean, a kind of, that's what sounds frivolous, but you know what I mean? It gave them a kind of, like they had, had done it already. And so they didn't have to kind of sit waiting like we were. Those are Richard friends. Uh, they came over, his father, it was a normal-sized man who brought them all over to this country. I guess there were a lot of Russian midgets. I don't know why. Uh, they were Russians. And he brought them over in 1923, and they just have been here ever since. I've met a few of them. The, these, the two ladies live in a project, or lived, rather, in a project on 100th Street in Amsterdam Avenue, you know? And you just walk into this building, you know, with billions of apartments, and you open a door, and in one of them are these people is high. I find that terrific. You know, now I tend to think of, of the act of photographing, generally speaking, as an adventure. And a total sort of like, I mean, my favorite thing is to go where I've never been. And for me, there's something just about going into somebody else's house. That's, you know, you don't know. I mean, I, first, first of all, I have one, when it comes time to go, if I have to take a bus to somewhere or if I have to take a cab uptown or, you know, I mean, I've got like a blind date in a sense. It's, it's always seemed something like that to me. And sometimes I have like a sinking feeling of, oh God, you know, now I, really, I don't really, you know, it's time and I don't really want to go. And then once I'm on my way, there's something terrific takes over about the sort of, 
uneasiness of it and how there's absolutely no method for control. I don't know, just walking into a house and how you feel your way, and there's a whole history in this house, and there's a whole, and something, of, there, there are two things that happen, and one is recognition, and the other is, is a total other feeling, you know, I mean, like, it's totally peculiar and other than you, but there's some sense in which I always identify with them. It's a widow, this lady. She's this mysterious kind of, you know, I don't know if you know the people who live like around Carnegie Hall. They're sort of um, slightly sort of ESP people, and uh, uh, she's a poet and this sort of oriental collector and, and has this terrific combination, I mean, I love people's relation to money, of uh, you know, sort of eating in the automat and having things which vary from, you know, the sublime to the ridiculous. I mean, there are, some of them are valuable and some of them are come from the five and ten. And uh, there's sort of no distinction made. It's a, I, I find it a very terrific thing. I don't know, I was terrifically moved by that lady. Uh, That's just a kid with a hand grenade. I mean, <laughs> it's true. I never saw that. I mean, I, you know, I know kids have war toys, but I never saw they have a hang, hand grenade. <laughs> what? But anyway, he was just exasperated with me. That's just a lady, I don't know anything about her. I mean, I don't know how to explain, you know, I can't really explain it, but that just knocks me out. I mean, it's just identical twins, that's all. And I went to it, where I found them was this terrific thing, it was a twin birthday party. <laughs> I mean, it was not, uh, not a birthday party, sorry, a twin Christmas party. And I went there picturing, again, you know, like the tornado picture, I pictured like I would get, you know, it's just like this room, I would get like duplicate people, you know, and I would just want to have 50 duplicate people, you know, I mean 25 duplicate people, and get 50, uh, you know, it was a kind of super dream, but it didn't work out that way, because some of them weren't identical, and some of them were triplets and they had their parents and it was all. <laughs> but it was sort of still terrific to be there. And there was this phenomenal thing. I don't know. Is anybody here a twin? You are? Yeah? Well, I don't know. It, I read a book about it once, but I still don't know. I, is it true that, this isn't very nice to say, but is it true that, that th there's usually one who's stronger and one who's weaker? May I ask which you are? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, they were the most remarkable example of it. Uh, I mean, somehow it just, well, you know how it is. You take all these pictures and just some of them, you know, are terrible and some of them are good and I don't know why. And I don't know why. I mean, there are these incredible things and you never see them when you're photographing it. I mean, just something happens to you, you know, and you, but there's a terrific thing of everything is the same. I mean, look at those those bobby pins. <laughs> and look at that collar, which I don't think that mother must have bought that dress. I mean, I figure she must have made that. I mean, it's like a parenthesis. I mean, like a, not a parenthesis, but, oh, if only you could see the real thing, because it's got these terrific hems that got let down. And you know, there's slightly differences in the hems. 
And then there's this mysterious overlapping of the hands, you know, I mean, they are not joined at the hip or anything. <laughs> and then this incredible thing, which is that they're wearing stockings that are very, very similar, but different. You know, so suddenly the mother said, you know, like, go on, kids, you know, each of you choose a different pair of stockings. <laughs> You seem like you know her. <laughs> That's just a lady. I mean, they're very much like ladies I knew. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, it's just a lady on 57th Street. That's all. But she looks sort of tribal. This is a from the first pro-war parade. The, I mean, the, like after the big, the first big peace parade in '67, there was a pro-war one. And it was very amazing. <laughs> uh, that's also from it. <laughs> We're having trouble, huh? Well, it's it's just much sharper than that and prettier. But anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a Christmas tree in Levitan. <laughs> and I, 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 went, I used to go to photographs, they, you know, they, they do terrific roof things, lights, and you've seen that, right? And, or you probably, maybe, what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I went to photographs, uh, but then, like, through the, you know, Levitan, everybody's got a picture window, and so through the picture window, I saw this thing, and the lady had just finished vacuuming. <laughs> and she was very pleased, and it's got these incredible Christmas wrappings. Uh, this is a family in Westchester. Uh, there was a quotation by an anthropologist, and it was something like, uh, the family with its something like narrow, insular, something or other. Uh, far from being the cornerstone of our civilization may well be the source of all our ills. Well, you know, that's no more true than the opposite, really. But uh, it fascinates me. I mean, the idea that there's something incredibly, uh, I think everybody has that feeling like, you know, you wonder if those two people are really the right ones. You know, I think uh, children suffer more from the feeling that they might have made a mistake, not even in the hospital, but in the <laughs> sky, you know? Uh, because there's something irrational about being born you know, in such a one place. So this was the kind of family that was like my family. I mean, not exactly like my family, but I adored that infinite lawn. What it reminds me of is, is the idea of conception. I mean, they each seem to be sort of, you know, inventing the possibility of the other two. You know, I don't know. It's a, but I mean, none of that had to do with before. I mean, I didn't think any of those things. And I don't know how that picture happened. I mean, it was the only good one. I take rotten pictures. I think that's another important secret that you have to tell. I used to think, you know, you could just take the good ones. You could be terrifically efficient. And, uh, you know, you just wouldn't play unless you took the good ones, you know? But it really doesn't work that way. I mean, they somehow seem to, uh, it's that thing of just doing it so goddamn much that that's sort of all you do. And everything gets translated and put into that big vat and uh, stirred around and little things come out and and you just do it like you 
like you almost don't do anything else. I mean, I do do other things. You know what Cornell said about me being a museum photographer? I hate that. I mean, I think, I think museums are, uh, I mean, it, it does seem to be a nice place and it's sort of clean and pretty. <laughs> and things look very nice on the wall. I don't know. I really photograph. I can't even figure what the reason is. I suppose I think it might be historical <coughs> in a funny way. I mean, I, it's embarrassing to me, but I think I, in a way I maybe do it because, although I can't defend this position, I think I maybe do it because I think there are things that nobody would see unless I photographed them. I mean, because I do think I have some slight corner on something about the quality of things. It's like going around a mirrorless world, asking everyone you meet to describe you. And everyone says endlessly, you have a face, even as I do, and your eyes are bluer and big. And even my smile when I look at you is you. But you don't believe it. And then one day, you bump smack into a stone wall and no one hears you say, ouch, and your whole problem is solved. We were gonna, we decided to dispense with formal introductions, but, um, but we didn't want you to be distracted trying to figure out which one of us is which. <laughs> so, I'm Francine Prose, that's Dune Arbus, Michael Cunningham.
Um, some of you may have been surprised by the slideshow or by certain things about the slideshow. Some of you maybe weren't. I know that I was. So, so we thought that just to compound your surprise or to add to the surprises, we would uh, do something else surprising, which is that we're not going to talk about the photographs, but about the words, about the literature. The surprising thing is that Dion Arbus wasn't just a great photographer, but an extraordinary writer. And, and because this is a literary festival and and because we wanted to, we're just going to talk about uh, her books. There are two books that have been released within the last few years. One is called Revelations, and the other is called Chronology. Um, Chronology contains letters, postcards, uh, selections from a notebook, grant proposals, magazine articles, and they, they cover the length, uh, and high school papers actually and cover um, her entire life. So, um, so we're each going to read aloud from it and then talk briefly. Uh, there won't be a question and answer period because I think we think that, um, that if you look at the books, it's self-explanatory. You can figure it out yourself. Oh, just a, a quick, one little quick quote first, and then um, this is um, this is from a uh, a text, that, an unpublished text from 1965 uh, that was meant to accompany a photo essay about Hubert's museum, which was. Uh, I suppose what could be called a sort of sideshow that was in Manhattan. It used to be that if, as your mother would say, you didn't know what to do with yourself, you would do it at Hubert's museum. You descend somewhat like Orpheus or Alice or Virgil into the cellar, which was where Hubert's museum was. Coming into the unholy fluorescent glare of it, you'd see yourself dwarfed and flattened and stretched in several distorting mirrors, and all around you, like flowers, a thousand souvenirs of human aberrations, as if the world had quite literally stashed away down there everything it didn't need. We had our awe and our shame in one gulp. What if we couldn't always tell a trick from a miracle? If you've ever talked to somebody with two heads, you know, they know something, you don't. Okay, so this is a high school paper um, from senior year seminar, March 5th, 1940. It's a paper on Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. Chaucer seems to be very sure and whole and his attitude toward everything is so calm and tender because he was satisfied and glad that he was himself. The way he describes meeting the 29 pilgrims gives you a feeling of easiness. It, is a, it isn't a frenzied need for companionship. It is a delight he gets in speaking and being with people. You get the feeling that he is a little bit beyond them, but that he doesn't want to see himself. The pleasure he gets from meeting them is part physical, part spiritual. He seems to love physical things, even obscene ones, 
and from looking at them, and he gets a contact with the other person. His way of looking at everything is like that of a newborn baby. He see th sees things, and each one seems wonderful, not for its significance in relation to other things, but simply because it is unique and because it is there. When he describes the nun's daintiness, it doesn't seem as if he thinks that there is a standard of good conduct. Rather, he turns separately to each one and looks on them as whole miracles, not as compounds of abstract qualities. And he seems to know that each one will always be himself, and he wants that. And then finally, um, this is from a, um, a text from, from uh, accompanying an article called Five Photographs by Diana Arbus. Once I dreamed I was on a gorgeous ocean liner, all pale, gilded, cupid-encrusted, rococo as a wedding cake. There was smoke in the air, people were drinking and gambling. I knew the ship was on fire and we were sinking slowly. They knew it too, but they were very gay, dancing and singing and kissing, a little delirious. There was no hope. I was terribly elated. I could photograph anything I wanted to. Nothing is ever the same as they said it was. It's what I've never seen before that I recognize. There's an old joke about a man who goes into a bar and he sees that the bartender has a banana in his ear. So he says, hey, you have a banana in your ear. And the bartender says, speak louder, please. I can't hear you because I've got a banana in my ear. <laughs> Nothing is ever alike. The best thing is the difference. I get to keep what nobody needs. A photograph is a secret about a secret. The more it tells you, the less you know. I picked out a few things Arbus wrote about families. I've been wanting to do families. I stopped two elderly sisters the other day and three gentlemen of <clears throat> and three generations of Jewish women from Brooklyn whom I'm to visit soon. The youngest is pregnant. And especially, there's a woman I stopped in a bookstore who lives in Westchester, which is upper suburbia. She's about 35 with terribly blonde hair and enormously eyelashed and booted and probably married to a dress manufacturer or a restaurateur. And I said I wanted to photograph her with her husband and children, so she suggested I wait until warm weather so I can do it around the pool. They're a fascinating family. I think all families are creepy in a way. Someone is getting me permission, they swear, from someone at the head of the New Jersey prisons and mental hospitals to photograph in them just for me. Meanwhile, I still have the opportunity to drive in a radio car for crimes in the long, hot summer nights. I haven't done 
I haven't returned runaways, only thought of it as part of my families, of all these possibilities, two-thirds will fall through. But the working title, if you can call it that, for my book, which I keep postponing, is Family Album. I mean, I'm not working on it, except <clears throat> to photograph like I would anyway, so all I have is a title and a publisher and a sort of sweet lust for things in it, like picking flowers or Noah's Ark. I can hardly bear to leave any animal out. Now, if your material on the family is not utterly signed and sealed, I have one of the upper middle class suburban family on their lawn, just two parents and a child, which I did before I was sick and just printed, and it is so odd. Nearly like Pinter, but not quite. It might serve to introduce the whole thing, along with that quotation you sent me of, oh, and the family with its narrow something or other, and it's et cetera, et cetera, might be the source of all our woes. I've forgotten it. But in the picture, the parents seem to be dreaming the child, and the child seems to be inventing them. My turn. I seem to have the, um, the biggest book. <laughs> I'm going to read uh, several things, and um, the, uh, the first one is from one of those high school essays like Francine read from. This one is nominally about Plato, um, but it's really the very beginning of the essay, and it's her distinguishing her view of the world from Plato's. There are and have been and will be an infinite number of things on Earth individuals, all different, all wanting different things, all knowing different things, all loving different things, all looking different. Everything that has been on Earth has been different from any other thing. That is what I love, the differentness, the uniqueness of all things and the importance of life. I see something that seems wonderful. I see the divineness in ordinary things. And then I'm going to read, or now I'm going to read, um, from excerpts from a, a number of letters uh, she wrote to Marvin Israel in 1960, uh, which was within the year that they had just become lovers. And she was writing to him almost every day. Um, at the same time, she was working on her first magazine project, which was so expansive and open-ended that it must have seemed like it could embrace almost anything. Last week, I looked up the word anomaly 
because I always thought that it meant a fish out of water. But I knew I was wrong, and I was right. It means something not subject to analogy or rule, or something odd or strange or exceptional. And I saw the connection between freaks and eccentrics and the exception to every rule. I went to the Mr. Universe health parlor, and while I was waiting for the manager, who proved to be a very sharp, bearded, flirtatious, snobbish, sculptor, pianist, ex-Mr. Universe, one man was weightlifting a bar with 325 pounds of weight on it, making heart-rending grimaces and worse, little series of gasps when suddenly he cried for help and stood there like Atlas in despair till two other guys rushed over to relieve him. It was uncanny because he couldn't put it down or drop it. And then this from another postcard. I am sitting in the meat market waiting for the heads. <laughs> Yesterday, I went all wet and bedraggled to the preliminaries of the Miss America contest, where they were choosing Miss New York City. The categories of judging were, one, personality in a bathing suit, <laughs> two, personality in an evening gown, and three, talent, which counted double what the other two categories counted. It took about 10 hours of interviews, sashaying, and performing what they called their talent. And the poor girls looked so exhausted by the effort to be themselves that they continually made the fatal mistakes, which were in fact themselves. <laughs> Our only hope for Judgment Day is that God judges us for personality in an evening gown while we are in a bathing suit. Friday night, I went into a child's, I mean the restaurant, and at a near table, there was a couple, and the woman was an incredible spastic, very plain and pale and middle-aged. Sorry, I can't, I can't see for my microphone. Um, and middle-aged, like Lillian Gish, like an out-of-order mechanical doll. She was eating her custard when I came in and dancing while she was eating it. Seven motions for every once the spoon got to her mouth. The man was very tall, thin, graceful, fatherly, agile, cheerful, affable, talkative. When they got up, he held her coat for her to dance into and her face didn't ever change. She looked terribly plain and dazzled, like someone seeing visions. And after she got into her coat, he bent over like a tree and kissed her. I am delighted to be on the track. I am really Dick Tracy. Only when I get on the trail, it lengthens. 
Everything is corroboration, so that although the trail lengthens, it is a lot like the farther afield you go, the more you are going home. As if the gods put us down with a certain arbitrary glee in the wrong place, and what we seek is who we really ought to be. And the very last thing is also another letter to Marvin Israel. Excuse me, Mr. Microphone. If the fall of man consists in the separation of God and the devil, the serpent must have appeared out of the middle of the apple when Eve bit, like the original worm in it, splitting it in half and sundering everything which was once one into a pair of opposites, so the world is a Noah's Ark on the sea of eternity, containing all the endless pairs of things, irreconcilable and inseparable, and heat will always long for cold, and the back for the front, and smiles for tears, and mutt for Jeff, and no for yes, with the most unutterable nostalgia there is. I think, I think why I pick particularly these middle ones um, is that there's such <clears throat> ordinary things that we've all seen or happened upon. And, and the precision of her attention to them seems to yield in each instance the meaning of it, and I think this is why she was a photographer and how she almost couldn't have been anything else um, because she had this incredible faith in reality. And photographs, used to at least, carry with them the, or at least the kind of photographs she took and the tradition of photography she was in. Um, carried with them this promise that something actually had happened. Um, and I think she was terribly fortunate, which is another word for gifted, um, to be able to look at things and believe in them enough to, to trust that they would disclose their own meaning if the right kind of attention was paid to them. And now, <laughs> um, I'd, I'd sort of wish Francine would talk about a few of the, her sentences. And, and as though, you know, maybe they're the footprints of a person. Well, you said we should talk about adjectives. So let's start there. I mean, I was, yes. I was, uh, I was, and just, even in the passage I was reading about Hubert's museum, it, it, what was that phrase? Unholy fluorescence, right? And I thought, you know, those of us who think of ourselves as writers, you'd kill for a phrase like, or an adjective yeah. like yeah. that. And yeah. then in, in the description of the family and childs, I mean, there's this great, um, there's this great passage from from Isaac Babel where he's talking about uh, revision, and he says, uh, he says one adjective per noun. That's it. 
only a genius can afford two adjectives <laughs> for now. And she's got about six of them. <laughs> and they were. So, you know, it's just, I mean, I, I, what do I want to say? I mean, none of us have to say anymore, now that we've done this reading, how well written the things in the book are. And, and also, you know, one of the things that makes them fun to read aloud, and I was, I was thinking, listening to the two of you, you know, the difference between things that are easy and, and, and pleasurable to read aloud and not has so much to do with rhythm. And I think hmm. that all of us who write, write for, partly for rhythm. And the rhythm of the sentences is fantastic. They just, just roll along and uh, all the way through postcards. I mean, no one writes postcards like this. It's, they're incredible. Yeah, it's probably important to know that uh, most of the things I read are dashed off. Yes, anybody who can write a phrase like, it looks as if the parents are dreaming the child hmm. and the child is imagining the parents, um, is a writer, uh, is a really good writer and I feel uh, so tiny now <laughs> that I would be proud to have written that line and I can't, I've never taken a photograph in my life. I'm just this guy who spends spending his whole life doing something that apparently Arbus just sort of did, did secondarily. <laughs> Imagine my surprise. I, I can't even take a photo on my phone <laughs> or autofocus. And... No, and also, I mean, the, the passage I read about the dream, there's another dream. I mean, that dream passage is, is a kind of purposeful or not purposeful revision of the earlier and and it seemed to me that that it was an improvement that certain things that she was you know conscious or not that uh, she edited it the way anybody would edit and 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 mm. compressed it and it, it came out better in the second version and, and that's what we do do either of you have a sense of how she's different on the slideshow as either a thinker or a wordsmith, um, other than the obvious differences of being, you know, spontaneous or relatively spontaneous as she was up there. Um, more, more, more fun than I thought she'd be. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I, I, one of the things that was so revelatory about hearing her talk and reading, and maybe all the more so reading, reading what she's written about the photographs was uh, I, I lived for many years with a psychoanalyst and mm. it was pretty clear pretty early on that we were engaged in a sort of similar pursuit. He was trying to simultaneously penetrate and respect the mystery of real people I was trying to simultaneously penetrate and respect the mystery of invented people. Um, and I got paid less, but um, <laughs> I had a certain sense listening to her talk about the pictures of, of exactly that, of a, nothing to do with narrative exactly, but of what I think of as a sort of writer's desire to connect with mm. people, whether invented or real, and also to 
hold back, to, 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 to understand that if you are so determined to get to the very, like, go through their heart and tickle their backbones, you lose something of them, that, 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 there, that there's an unknowable quality that as a writer you have to respect. And I really, I, I, I felt like she was talking about that. Hmm. Well, you know, one of the reasons I, I wanted to read the Chaucer piece was that she talks about seeing things like a baby, which is uh -huh. so important for the photographs and the, and the writing. And, and she kind of does that with language too. I mean, there are these words that, that you've kind of stopped, people have kind of stopped using or stopped thinking about, like, like the word naughty, for example, which she uses <laughs> in the, in, twice in uh -huh. the slideshow. And, in yeah. the, and now people say transgressive. <laughs> which is such a terrible word compared to, no, I mean, Naughty has that childlike thing and, and transgressive has a kind of, I mean, Naughty has mischief built into it and transgressive is just like, I don't know, boring and adult. So, um, so there's that and also the way she keeps using the word terrific. I thought, oh, if Chaucer knew the word terrific, he would have used it all the time. <laughs> and, and I thought, I'm just gonna, and I'm just gonna say terrific all the time now. I just am gonna get rid of all the other adjectives that I know and just use that one over and over. Yeah, and, and also a, a certain sense that um, how these, how she came to know these people, how they got to where they were was part of was 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 part of the image that it mattered that you know that the um, transvestite transgendered woman um, was a big ugly woman who walked into a restaurant and everyone went whoa that that that, that, that there's more to the story. Mm. Than, just the, than, the, than just the image, that, that what led to the image is, all, is also part of the story, which was interesting to me. Mm. Yeah, and also the, the quality of attentiveness that comes out in the photographs and the writing. I mean, I've looked at the twins picture probably hundreds of times and I never noticed that, that their stockings were different until I heard it on the thing. And I thought, what's wrong with me? How, it's so obvious once you see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and, and you know her her speculations about about the uh, the woman who she ended up photographing by the pool, imagining the uh, dreaming of the child, uh, probably married to a dress manufacturer or restaurateur. Uh, I didn't. I, I I somehow hadn't expected the the people the people's history to matter to her the way it obviously did, or uh -huh. or her speculations about them. That they, that, they, that they weren't just, uh, they weren't sort of interesting human objects, the people who were informed by their histories and by her ideas about them. Yeah, yeah. Very true. Well, those people, she says, uh, are like herself. So all those, all those details are, I think, I don't, you know, ways of connecting to them. I think, or ways of, of uh, sympathetic identification, yeah, biographical yeah. sympathetic identification. Yeah. Adam Bovary says so. I think blah, everybody yeah. sort of starts out as seeming other to her, um, and that otherness is the connection. I mean, it's it's almost like well, it's like that thing you read about, uh, wasn't it something about recognition? Yeah. 
I mean, the other thing about the slideshow and the photographs and, and the writing is that they all seem to concentrate courage and terror in such high proportions. Mm. And I don't think anybody does anything in any art ever that doesn't take high proportions of both of them all the time. But, but, but it's so clear, uh, listening to her yeah. and, watch, and looking at the pictures and reading, reading the books, there they, there they are. And yeah. somehow, yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe we learn to do a better job of hiding it or something, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I feel that there should be more about me in this discussion. Um, <clears throat> I, I, uh, whenever I am inventing a character, developing a character, I always start from a certain disdain. And the first qualities I account for in my own mind in this person are um, their shittier qualities. Vanity, greed, you know, whatever, crimes, crimes large and small. And then my job in my own mind as I further develop these characters is to try to defend them and to try to build on more presentable qualities. Um, and I eventually fall in love with them. I and part of what makes it possible to fall in love with them is I feel like I already know the worst you can do. And I love you anyway. And <laughs> I had a certain sense, now I may be getting, um, maybe my narcissism is starting to show you. Yeah, we're, yeah, Arbus and I were really so much alike. Um, but I was just about to tell you that she was just the opposite of Oh, that. okay, okay, well there, there you go. Because I, I, I was thinking that she was drawn, I had the idea that she was drawn to these people initially by their surfaces and then began to get a, an ever stronger sense of their humanness. But um, I could of course be entirely wrong about that. I guess that's part of why I read the thing about the opposites, because I, on the one hand, you could say that someone who was talking about the lack of difference in some sense between yes and no um, might be seeking the refuge of the uncommitted. Um, hmm. But I think she was, her acquisition of knowledge was not any way to get to an opinion, but in fact the opposite. <laughs> to make all opinions sort of drop away, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe you catch some opinions in the weaker photographs, but I think when they're really good, you know, you've lost all your judgments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gotcha. <laughs> you fire these theories off, sometimes they hit, sometimes Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've run out of time, so I'm going to read one little section, and then um, thank you. This is how uh, both chronology and revelations, both books end with this quote from a letter, May 1968. Somewhere at the very end, there is a joke. And even though I forget it, there are moments when I have fancied I knew just for a second what the punchline was. Thank you.